Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. I'm Stacey Francis, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dawn Cardi. And we're going to be talking about the pros and cons of either getting married with your partner or living together and deciding not to walk down the aisle. In particular, we're going to be talking about what I love to talk about most, and that is money. Because unfortunately, the majority of us who are in love think about a lot of things with our partner, but we don't necessarily think about the finances. And that's what we're going to be doing today. And Dawn has a lot of information that she can share. She spent dozens of years as a matrimonial attorney representing individuals in divorce as well as custody proceedings. One of the reasons why I really wanted her to be part of this conversation in particular is because she has a experienced background in corporate and securities law that makes her uniquely qualified to talk about some of these more complex financial issues that we're going to be tackling today. We're going to be talking about how income, assets, a business, how they all are treated if you are married or if you decide to live together. Big decisions such as having children and whether or not one of you stay home and gives up their career to take care of them. These are important issues that you need to think about and have unbelievably significant financial implications that will impact you, your children, for the rest of your life. And most important, please stay to the end. Dawn shares with us the number one secret that you can follow that will protect you from being one of the many women over age 65 who are divorced, alone, and living below the poverty line. She shares these tips to help you make the best decision possible for you, your long-term, as well as your family that you have now or your future family. Thank you for joining Financially Ever After, and please help me welcome our esteemed guest today, Dawn Cardi. So Dawn, I'm really excited to have you here today because we're talking about a topic that most women don't really think about from a financial angle. And it's whether or not to tie the knot or just to live together. And I know as a woman myself, in particular, when I was just dating my husband, we lived together and eventually got married, but I was so oblivious and so in love, finances didn't even come into the conversation. But it's interesting because one of the things it sounds like you have seen with the number of individuals you've worked with going through the divorce process, this is something that you should be thinking about from the very beginning. Yes, absolutely. People are shocked to learn that once they get married, everything they earn, except for certain exceptions, it becomes marital property, irrespective of whose name it's in. So some people think, well, I have my bank account in my own name, therefore I keep saving in that account. If I get divorced, that's my money, and he has his, and he has his money. 
but that's not how it works. From the date of the marriage to the date of commencement of an action, everything you earn is marital property, except inheritances that you don't commingle in that joint bank account, by the way, and you don't commingle with your other marital property. Very important to remember. Number two, third-party gifts that you don't commingle. Your grandmother gives you $10,000 a year. Your father gives you $10,000 a year. Do not put that in a bank account that has marital money in it. Gifts from third parties, those are separate property. If you win, if you have a personal injury action, pain and suffering award, that's separate property. But by mm-hmm. and large, your retirement, everything becomes marital yep. from that date of commencement. And Don, can you talk to me a little bit about just in general commingling and how it can so easily happen? So I once had a client, it was the saddest thing. She was a wonderful woman and she got a $200,000 inheritance and she put it in a bank account that was joint. And then when marriage broke up, it was a 20-year marriage. She was horrified to learn that she could not get that money back. And that was really her only nest egg. It was, it was going to be really the only thing she had. She wasn't a mom who worked outside the home. She had three daughters. So she had no idea. Another way you can commingle it by mistake is you've got this bank account and it has, you've been saving in it and it has, and, and you've been putting some of your savings in it from your work. Now you get that inheritance and you put it in that account. It's in your name and you think, oh, that's separate property. No, you commingled it with marital property. Money is fungible. You're going to have to fight the fight. So if you inherit anything, if you get a gift, open up a separate account, keep it in that account, make it clean. If you want to share any of it, you take it out and you put it into the joint account. But keep it sacrosanct so there is no question that that's your money. If you were to get to yeah. Can you run into problems too, Dawn, if let's say that $200,000 of money you put to the side, separate account, you didn't put any additional money in there, but you took some out to help pay for the down payment that you and your spouse now own. Is that another big no-no? That's why we always recommend prenuptial agreements and postnuptial agreements so we can keep these issues really clean. But If you can show a paper trail from the bank of, let's say, $50,000 into the joint account, it sits there for a short period of time, and then you, you you, you you use it for your down payment, you have a very strong argument to say, upon divorce, that you should be credited for that separate property. You know what the big problem is, though, Stacey? Banks don't keep records beyond seven years. People don't keep records. And and what happens is they tell me a story, but they don't have the checks. They don't have the bank statements. And the person who is claiming separate property in a divorce has the burden of proof. Yeah. And you often don't think about these things when things are going well. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's the 2020 hindsight. You don't think about it until, oh, what was I thinking? But you're in love you want to help the family, can be a problem. And so I'm definitely hearing from you that when you get married, if there are any gifts, a personal injury, even 
potentially lottery winnings could potentially be. Lottery winnings are marital. Oh, they are. Darn it. I'm going to stop. I'm stopping playing. It's not worth it playing the lottery. (laughs) (laughs) But then making sure that you put it in an account that's separate and that you don't add additional money to it. And I know it can be confusing because if you have your own job and you're earning a little extra and you're able to put some money away and you add it to that separate account that you put your inheritance in, you've just tainted the water. And I liken it a lot to taking two glasses of water and one is red dye in it and the other one is just plain tap water and you put them together. Once they're together, I haven't figured out a way how to separate that red dyed water from the just normal tap water from your sink. It's much easier with retirement then because you can always go back and say, on the date of commencement, what did I have in my 401k? Yes. I mean, on the date of the marriage. And then on the date of commencement of an action for divorce. So it's easier for forensic accountants to make that division. They, they, they can easily look in and say, what is the marital portion? Yep. But what if you've been the one, you've made a deal with your spouse, right? So you're going to live on one person's salary and the other person is going to take theirs and they're going to put in a lot of money into their retirement account. That was your plan, right? And now you're getting divorced. So now you have to balance what's in his or her retirement account has to be shared with you in order to balance out and make it equal. Typically, courts will say 50-50, even though we're an equitable distribution state and not a community property state, by and large, 50-50 for a long-term marriage. Of five years is considered a long-term marriage. Mm-hmm. So is the answer, just don't get married, live together? Well, there's two answers. One is just live together and yep. have agreements that you reach. So for example, you can live together. And if you buy a piece of property together, you just have a contract, an agreement. Mm-hmm. I yeah. draft them all the time for people who are not married. What happens if one or the other wants to sell? You know, just like a partnership, just like a business. So you can you can control that asset if you don't get married. Another way to protect yourself is a prenuptial agreement or a postnuptial agreement. You decide that, and I recommend that everybody who gets married come in for consult because even if they don't want a prenuptial agreement or they don't think they want it, you are amazed how astounded they are when they learn about what happens to their money or what happens to their business that they have built before marriage. So you've built this business, you have this law firm or you have your business, you're getting married. Now, what happens? Well, everything you're earning is marital property. So now you've taken a piece of separate property, which is your business, And now you're putting marital property into it because you're investing in your business from the income from your business. You have no prenuptial agreement or postnuptial agreement. So then you're getting divorced. Now your spouse says, I want a piece of that business. Hmm. Well, and are they saying that also because they're saying, well, you used marital money, the earnings from the business you put back into the business to grow it. And yes, that may be true, but you also put countless hours of blood, sweat, and tears 
And I will tell you, this is an emotionally charged topic because for most people, myself included, your business is your baby. You put so much of yourself in there. And then to think that either A, you're going to have a new business partner, aka your ex-husband, or you have to buy them out. Well, typically your husband, your spouse is not in the business with you. You typically are in the place that you have to buy them out. And you'd be shocked at the value of your business. You don't know how many people will come in and tell me, oh, my business isn't worth anything. It's just me. Well, it is. And they're shocked at how valuable it is. And then the fight becomes, what percentage of that business do you have to share with your spouse? Different departments, appellate division departments, have different laws. So the first department is a little bit different from the second department. So it's anywhere between 10% you have to share to 50%. Now, 50% would be when you're really working, founded it together, you work together, it's both of your businesses. But you're fighting about what percentage do you really, does that spouse get? Now, what if you're in a family business? You're in a family business, one of the spouses, they get married. Now you've lived 10 years together. You're getting divorced. Well, the spouse wants part of what he or she thinks is your share of the business. Well, now we have to go back and we have to see a couple of things. We have to see what was the value of the business at the time that you got married? Did the business increase in value? If it increased in value, was your spouse instrumental in that increase or was it market forces or was it his brother who was the genius? If if you can prove that it is the spouse, then you look at what percentage of increase did it increase and then what percentage should the spouse get? It's complicated. What I'm just seeing in front of my eyes are dollar signs. And then on top of it, we're in a COVID world. So how do you determine what the value of a business is really going to be? Because normally you're looking at future cash flow of what that business is expected to earn going forward. And for most businesses, that's drastically changed now and they don't know really what it's going to look like. It's a new world. It is with new problems. With new problems, with valuations of businesses, with valuations of real estate. Yeah. Well, how much child support and spousal support are you going to pay? If you have an award, if you already have a judgment of divorce and you're, you've agreed to pay a certain amount, I am getting calls for post-judgment litigation. I've lost my job. I've been furloughed. I, yeah. My business yeah. is not... I want a reduction. I want a modification. We don't know what courts are going to do yet because courts have just started to reopen. So they're really dealing with a backlog of cases. We really don't know. I'm very frank with my clients when they come in. What I do tell them is, if you want a downward modification, you must file as soon as possible because you will only get a downward modification retroactive to the date you filed. So if you don't file and you come in six months down the road, you're only going to get that modification if you get it at all. So I am telling people to file, but COVID is going to make a big change, I I believe. So we've talked about some of the negatives of marriage. I mean, obviously, we know there are a lot of positives, but from the financial perspective of having to be very clear about 
where you put money from an inheritance or a gift or a personal injury award and keeping that separate, making sure that that's not commingled. The other piece of marriage that is frustrating is that the marriage penalty is still out there. When you look at a married couple, they are much more likely to fall into alternative minimum tax, which is a higher typically overall bracket. Just being together often, they push into a higher tax bracket too. That being said, there are other negatives with individuals who decide to stay living together. What are some of the topics? Because I imagine that if someone hasn't watched The Bachelor and decided to swear off marriage, like this podcast probably will do so. But what are some of the things to think about if you're going to decide to be with someone and live with them? And I'm not just talking about, you know, I'm not sure if we'll end up together. This is more of a, this is my person. We have decided to have the living together situation versus getting married, even though we have decided that we are each other's person for the rest of our life. So, I mean, the biggest issue for people living together is, remember, they are not accumulating joint wealth that can be distributed upon a divorce. They're not accumulating joint retirement monies. They are not going to be eligible for spousal support. We are not a palimony state. We've never been, and it doesn't look like we're going to be. So, and and Don, can I just go back? Because I think this, you just hit on something so important. So, what you're saying is again, living together, that's wonderful, but those two separate pots are separate. And if one of you is making less money or gives up their career to have more flexibility to support the other person or has even children, they're not going to be allowed to qualify for alimony or spousal support. Even though they've given up possibly years of earning capacity to support this other person and this other person could be walking away with a fully stocked 401k with years of experience with a very high income potential and she doesn't have the 401k, doesn't have the earning potential. She's living in the one bedroom with kids and he's got the mansion. He's got the Tribeca three to four bedroom. Now you're getting child support for the children. You're not getting any spousal support. You're not getting any nest egg. You don't have any retirement benefits. You have sacrificed your financial well-being in a relationship that doesn't protect you. And so again, I highly recommend that people enter into agreements. If they don't want to get married, fine. But if they want to, for example, have children and they want one spouse, one partner or the other to stay at home or work part time or take a job that is not as demanding and therefore will not increase their income, all of that should be compensated Mm -hmm. for if you're making that decision. Yeah. So Dawn, you've talked about prenuptial and postnuptial, which is for couples that are married. What would you call these types of, is it called a cohabitation agreement? Is I mean, that I, the reference what, or? What we call it. I've been okay. doing actually more of them pre- recently. It's a cohabitation agreement. It's, it's essentially, it looks and smells like a prenuptial agreement, mm-hmm. but it's an agreement that talks about what will happen in the future if the couple 
separates. Yeah. You know, I had two people, very interesting. He was a retired lawyer. He's very successful, lots of money. He, he The second marriage for him, she'd never been married. She was in her 50s, fabulous nurse, wonderful, wonderful person. He wanted her to travel with him. And so she was afraid because what if I travel with him and then we break up? So he entered into an agreement whereby... If she left her job or reduced her hours, he would contribute into her retirement plan the amount of money she would have earned had she continued to work. Wow. I mean, that makes sense. I'm getting teary because what does that show that really shows that he really cared about her? Well, he Right? And she was able to advocate for herself. Not just yeah. that he really cared about her, but that he really understood what she was the giving financial up. implications. Yeah. You know, so many times people people say, I, I'm in love, and love is going to solve this problem without any understanding of the real practicalities of the world, yeah. which are these. Yeah. You know, I mean, we have being pragmatic doesn't mean you not, can't be in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've talked about how getting married or living separately, how investment accounts, savings accounts, retirement accounts are treated very differently. Is income also treated differently? Very differently. Your income is your income and you will never have to share that income. You will never have to, if you save it, you don't have to share it. You won't have to support that spouse, that partner if, 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 if you break up. The only way that it is similar is even if you are not married, you will both have to support your child or your children. Yeah. And that's so definitely, yeah. So hearing that just as assets are separate, if you're living together, your incomes are completely separate. Whereas your debt is separate. And your debt is separate. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you're married, that income is shared and you would need to support the person who's the less earning spouse afterwards. You bring up a really important topic because especially in the time of COVID, we're seeing credit card debt increase, overall debt loads of individuals increase, understandably, because the number of individuals that are laid off or furloughed is something that we haven't seen since 2008 and actually even the Great Depression. So if you're getting married, the death do us part, you are building wealth together, but also could be unfortunately building a legacy of debt. So what happens, Dawn, to the woman who marries her Mr. Right, finds out that it's actually unfortunately Mr. Wrong, and she came to the marriage with her savings that she worked so hard for, and now she's walking away and there's significant credit card debt, possibly even taxes owed, not on her earnings necessarily. She most likely in this scenario has paid taxes on her earnings, but let's say on his for his company. I just had this situation with a client of ours and she, hopefully they're not going to end up in a divorce and they're going to start to see a therapist because this debt actually in her case was hidden from her. Yeah, it's often hidden. Yeah, due to shame, due to guilt, embarrassment, but really it's financial infidelity. But 
the challenge is even if she didn't have a hand in creating that debt, my understanding that there are certain situations where she's still liable to pay it. So while I don't give tax advice, <laughs> exactly <laughs> loud and clear, I have had clients who have been eligible for what's called innocent spouse. It's very hard to get. And you're, um, you're talking specifically about... Um, IRS debt. IRS debt. IRS yep. debt. So yep. you signed a joint return, but you really did not know that the other party was, for example, not reporting substantial amounts of income, or in this particular case, the man had a lot of gambling income gambling debt. and debt. And, and so she was able to show, and through her accountant, that she was what they call an innocent spouse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That it was actually only in the midst of getting divorced did she discover oh. this particular debt. Had another client, husband was, was getting huge amounts of cash and taking checks and not claiming it. And only we only discovered it when we hired our forensic accountant to do the analysis for the divorce. She was able to get innocent spouse. So, but it's rare. If you don't get it, the IRS is coming after whoever has the money. They're going yes. to, to it, it doesn't matter that it was his debt or your debt. It's, yeah. you're jointly responsible. Credit card debt is very interesting because if you have a credit card in your own name and you have established it by your own income, your spouse is not, doesn't, doesn't have a card you're not going to be liable for your spouse's debt. In fact, I have had cases where spouses have declared bankruptcy in order to alleviate them of the credit card debt, and it did not impact on the other spouse because the credit card debt was in his or her name, and it was separate. And it's a way of dealing with, with, with debt. But if you are both using credit cards on what, what's considered to be joint credit, then you're responsible and they can come after you. Yeah. And it's a big wake up because you often don't realize that they're going to come after you, even if you're not the one who necessarily ran up the debt. And I know I'm talking about the husband doing this. We obviously know that the shoe fits both sexes. <laughs> the shoes fits both sexes. These are a lot of things to think about of when you're, you're married, you do have to consider debt in addition to assets. And it could be a factor if you're marrying someone who doesn't have the same financial DNA or upbringing or, or values, you may want to continue to live together but not married. Or if you do get married, do exactly what you're saying is making sure that you have a prenup to protect yourself and to keep your accounts and your assets as separate as possible. And I think one of the things that people don't think about is, is postnuptial agreements. And Can you talk about postnups? Everybody hears prenups and typically you see them like in People Magazine and so-and-so celebrity, but we know that even more so, in fact, millennials are much more interested in prenups than any generation we've seen. And what's interesting is millennials, I mean, they're still in their young 20s. They don't have much in assets, but they see the value. So we tend to hear more about prenups again before you're getting married, but tell us a little bit about postnups. So once you're married, you can enter into a postnuptial agreement, and there are many different reasons why you might do it after your marriage. Sometimes it's because one spouse or the other has strayed, 
And part of the reconciliation is the negotiation of a post-nup in the event that the parties do get divorced, that you can have a comfort level that because you've had a lack of trust, you want the financial picture to be as you both agree for it to be. I've done a post-nuptial agreement and I actually recommend them if your one or the other spouse is choosing to stay home and care for children mm-hmm. or is giving up a job and moving like to Singapore or out of the country where mm-hmm. a place where you cannot get employment so that you are safe, you are, you have a safety net. You don't have to rely on what are the court rules for spousal support? How long will I get spousal support? You know, the the maintenance statute and the spousal support statutes, I think, are not terribly lengthy, nor are they that generous. And I see many a 50-year-old woman really in trouble getting divorced who, who stayed at home or took a minimal job to take care of the family. And now judges are saying, go work at McDonald's. Really? Yeah. Or 20 years ago, they were graphic designers. Or yeah, 20 yeah. years ago, they were lawyers or accountants or computer whiz or whatever. They're not getting back into the workforce so soon. And mm-hmm. they're certainly not coming in at any substantial level of income. So... If it were my child and he or she were going to do that, I would say I would want them to have an agreement. Okay, I'm going to work part-time. And because typically what happens is the couple is married. Somebody is making a substantially more money than the other. The child is born. You factor in childcare. You factor in other things. And they decide, you know what? It's really not worth Typically, it's her income, right? It's not worth it for her to get divorced. I'm doing great, honey. Well, I'm doing great, honey, is only while you're the honey. And when you're not the honey anymore, it's too bad, too sad. And you have to be pragmatic about it. Yeah. I I really, and that's an an example of when you do a post-nuptial agreement. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's older children and it's a second marriage. And there's some inheritance issues they want to resolve and they didn't do it before they got married. They do it with a post-nuptial agreement. So it can be quite useful. Yeah. And also the key that you talk about that's really important. These are really phenomenal tools for normal people too, right? It's not just Leonardo DiCaprio and whoever bless he ends up with. It's two teachers. Yeah. it's a, a nurse and a, a someone who wants to open a fitness center. Yeah, it's a yeah. business. No, it's for people who are of all walks of life who yeah. want to have control over their financial well-being. And I'm just going to go ahead and put a plug before we go to our next topic, which I know is really important talking about kids. But couples who talk about money are couples who end up typically having a healthy, happy, long-term marriage. And the couples we find that come to us that they're starting the divorce process, there are many issues, but one of them is always money. Always money. It's not necessarily that they didn't have enough, but it's that there's conflict and they don't see eye to eye and they have different opinions about maybe how it should be spent, how it should be earned, 
how the children should be raised in relation to money and the gazillion of other issues that you think about. In talking about kids, so we've talked about a lot of the financial implications. Are there any other differences in the way that the law treats legal custody, physical custody of children if they're coming from a home where the two of you are living together versus a home where the two of you are married? If you have a child and you're not married, as a matter of law, once paternity is established, and paternity can be established by virtue of parents' name being on the birth certificate, and or if eventually you go to family court and there's a challenge, there's DNA testing. So you are jointly, you have joint decision-making in regard to that child. You can't, one or the other of you can't just unilaterally, if, if somebody tries, to, the other partner tries to stop you, do and make decisions on your own. So you're de facto joint decision-makers. For some people, that's terrific. For other people, they thought, well, if I'm not married, and women tend to think this, and I have the child, it's my child, and I will be able to control all the decision-making. I will decide when that child will be with his parent or her parent, other parent, and you really can't. And they're Mm -hmm. drawn into court, and they're drawn into family court, and they are ill-prepared to deal with that situation. However, you really, you can't control by agreement anything that has to do with children. So even in a prenuptial agreement, people will say, well, can we talk about child support and can we talk about custody? And no, it's against public policy. No one will enforce that section of an agreement. And is it because you're impinging on the rights of the child? Yes, because the child, the court acts in local parentis, in pas patria, it's called. What is best for the child is what's important. You can't contract for that. Okay, yes, that makes so sense. So the judge is going to decide who's got the decision-making, how this child support is going to be, which direction it's going to go in, what are the issues that surround this child's is the child going to be able to travel overseas? Is the mm-hmm. child not going to be able to travel overseas? There's so many different issues. You cannot contract for that. Yeah. So whether you're sense. married or not, what you don't have when you're not married is when you break up, you have no spousal support. So all you have is that child support. So you and this child may have been living a nice, comfortable lifestyle with two incomes coming in. Now, you're separated. You're only going to have your income, and you're only going to have whatever child support the court awards you or you agree, both agree. That often changes your standard of living substantially. You know how much apartments cost in this town, for example? $3,500, a $4,000 a month apartment, which was easy for you to do when you were both together. It's not so easy for yeah. you to do when you're just getting child support and you're making $20,000 a year, yeah. $30,000 a year. Yeah. So that's where your financial safety net isn't there. And you're not building up yeah. any assets together Yeah. for your retirement. So I have to say that no matter what, whether you are getting married or you're 
going to be living together, you can't not think about this, right? Whatever you're going to be choosing, there's no get out of jail free card there that allows you to just skip this conversation because whether you are living together or you are married, there is going to be a financial component, especially so if you have children. Is there any other advice that you have for women? I know we've gone through a lot, but you've worked with so many women. You've seen, unfortunately, what can happen after a divorce where she hasn't really been able to be a part of the planning process or hasn't really thought about the planning process and seen women really suffer financially. And there's a statistic that scares me that the highest number of women, the population most likely to live below the poverty line or at it over age 65 are divorced women. And so it's pretty clear that the statistics are telling us that we're doing something wrong and we're not thinking about these things and really protecting ourselves the way that we need to. I really am deeply concerned when I see a woman leave the workforce on a long, longer than a couple of years without thinking about keeping her fingers in the pie. It may not have to be the full-time job, but you should be employed in the profession that you enjoy or you were trained for or the job you were trained for. You should, you should definitely be either working part-time, consulting, or if it's starting your own business, if it's whatever it is, you have to continue to be an earner with a footprint in the yeah. economic world because otherwise you are nobody. And the longer you're married and the longer you've stayed home without working outside the home, you're just not getting rewarded for it. And you're just not going to be cared. It's, the, the country isn't going to take care of you with its laws. So that it's near impossible for me to get lifetime spousal support. Yet there are women that I have in their 50s who have no real retirement who are not going out there and making a lot of money, who aren't getting a sizable amount of equitable distribution, they are the women that you were talking about make up that statistic. And I 100% agree with you, Dawn, that this country does not recognize parents who stay home. They don't recognize that. They don't value that. Because if this country did, there would be a safety net for those people. If if there was really truly a value that they believed, and I'm saying they, and you can decide who you want to point fingers at, then they would have addressed this to make sure that these primarily women and some men, that they have options. And we have a very long way to go. I grew up with a mom who worked full-time And she went to school at night and she ended up getting her master's and her PhD while we were young and raising us. And dad definitely was there too, but it was different. She was the person kind of pushing the ball forward. And she really instilled in me that this was going to be important for me to be able to support myself. And I don't in any way have an opinion to other women who have decided to stay home. 
Because I will tell you, Dawn, realistically, and I've noticed this also through COVID and remote homeschooling, that job is much harder. <laughs> My much job. harder. I've it always said so that. So much harder. I've um, always said that. Yeah. But if we are going to do this, which I understand that for some families it makes sense, you should do that. You should do that. But protect yourself. And if you won't protect yourself, do it to protect your children. Absolutely. To protect your children. Because it's not just you, right? It's not just these women who suffer, it's their children who have two different lifestyles, worried about mom, is mom going to be okay, end up having to take care of mom financially. Well, not only that, who do the adult children boomerang back to in a divorce? They're typically boomeranging back to mom, who has the lesser amount of money because she didn't either pursue her career or didn't work outside the home, or even if she did work outside the home, She's the one helping to support them because they're coming yep. back to mom. And it's interesting because during COVID, we've seen this too. Adult children with even their children, who are they boomeranging back to? They're boomeranging back to mom. And so now she has a house full of her 45-year-old son plus her five-year-old granddaughter and three-year-old grandson. You're right. And fewer resources to be able to make that happen. Yeah, I could talk about this all day. I, <laughs> I could talk I, about this all day. I, as you know, I'm the oldest of four daughters. My mother was 15 when I was born. Her mantra, her mantra and her goal in life was, you cannot ever rely on a man to support you. She said, even if he does support you, you need to be independent yourself, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And she went back to school and got two, graduated with honors, got two master's degrees and was a reading specialist. Oh my gosh. Raising four daughters. And all four of us, there are two lawyers and two nurses. And that was her goal. And, yeah. and she just instilled it in, in us, not just by saying it, but by showing us mm-hmm. how important it was. Yeah. Well, you remind me that I need to use those words with my daughter too. And I think that's really, really important. You have to make your son appreciate what that's about. Being the kind of father who Mm -hmm. really pitches, who really does equal work, not pitches in, not babysits, but is equal parenting. Yeah. The father who says, you know what, boss? My kid has a fever. My wife has a a business meeting. I'm staying home. That's the kind of sons we need to be raising. Yeah. Get it. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. And I digress a little bit, but my husband is from England, as you know, and he is much more of a dad. And one of his colleagues, he works at a company where it's almost all men. And one of his colleagues came up to me and she said, you know, I just want to tell you this, that Michael is one of the few men in this company that puts family first and takes the kids to dentist appointments and does the whatever. And she said, thank you, because that helps me. And the more people that can do that, the better. And obviously it's working. Last night we had a trivia where we had to guess what is Sammy's favorite color and what's Sebastian's favorite color. And one of them was, who is your favorite parent? And well, funny enough, Dawn, both of them, is, it's daddy. 
So, okay. <laughs> That's great. Top liver. Okay. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much. Um, well, thank you for having me. Yeah. How You're can sure. the women listening today reach out to you? I'd love for you to share your website and we'll make sure that we put all that information also in our show notes. And so all of you listening, you can get this information in the show notes, as well as a link to a couple of really good articles for you to read. Sure. So our law firm is Party and Edgar LLP. We're at Madison Avenue, 99 Madison Avenue, New York. And our website is www.partyedgarlaw.com. Great. And also, I know that you guys do more than just matrimonial. Do you want to talk a little bit about that really quickly? Yes. My other hat is I do federal criminal defense work. And that means that I represent people who can't afford lawyers in the federal court. So I typically represent four people, although I do have a private practice, but I primarily am on the Criminal Justice Act panel on both the Eastern and Southern Districts. So I have a lot of litigation experience and it is a really good balance for me to, to do that kind of work because when we think we are suffering, we have no comprehension of what some of our fellow and sister citizens are living with, children are living with, young people are living with, people of color are living mm-hmm. with. It's important for us to understand how important that practice is. Yeah. And okay, my partner yeah. does labor and employment law. So it's people law. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that he's probably pretty busy right now with oh, the with number the of laid off and furlough. Right. And, and that's important because even if you were let go due to financial reasons with COVID, it's always good just to talk to someone to make sure that I have a dear friend and she works at a company. She's one of the only female scientists there. And there were three others. And during this time, all three lost their jobs. And so she's the only woman left out of extremely large company. And not many other people lost their job too. So Again, it doesn't mean necessarily because of discrimination, but it's always good to be informed. Always good to be informed. So thank you. Well, thank you for being here. And thank you everyone for joining Financially Ever After. This was a unbelievably enlightening podcast. And whether you're planning to take a trip down the aisle or continue to live together without an I do, Finances are something that needs to be part of your life and needs to be part of your relationship with your one and only. I have to tell you, the individuals that we see coming in our office that unfortunately are starting the divorce process, money is often a significant area of conflict where two people unfortunately don't see eye to eye and in some cases even financial infidelity. The time you invest in having honest, open, and authentic conversations about money will support you and your spouse so that your one and only is your knight in shining armor for the rest of your life. And if you have concerns about how you are financially, whether you are in a partnership or not, reach out to us. We can help you better understand where you are today what moves you need to make to put yourself on a secure financial path and help you make your dollars work as hard as possible so that you can live your life without the worry and anxiety of money. 
That's what we're here for. So reach out to me, Stacy at francisfinancial.com, or you can visit our website, www.francisfinancial.com. Thanks for tuning in to Financially Ever After, and we'll see you in two weeks.